All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Compliance Guy. I'm your host, Sean Weiss, and as always, I want to begin by saying thank you to each and every single one of you who's logging on, tuning in, and just hanging out with me and my special guest for a little while. Again, it's because each, each and every single one of you, we are a top 25. Actually, we are number seven on the top 25 regulatory compliance and health law podcasts out of about 2,600. And it's all because of each and every single one of you. Thank you so much. Well, today I get an opportunity to hang out with a friend. And I can say that he is truly a friend. Um, Although we've only known each other for a short period of time, I feel like we've known each other for decades, and it's one of these relationships that, you know, it just kicked into gear, and everything fell into place, and, you know, we we realized the more and more that we have opportunities to talk to each other, the more that we have in common, the more that we are so much alike. It's possible that he is my brother from another mother, um, and I'm talking about one of and and I mean this sincerely um if if he's not one of the most interesting men in the world he is the most interesting man in the world uh because again every time I talk to him I learn something new something fun um today you know we're, we're going to talk about some stuff that's probably going to irritate and anger some of you because you 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 need to be angry and if you're not you will be by the end of this podcast because we're talking about the government we're talking about commercial insurance companies we're talking about the harassment on a continuous basis to the point where they browbeat providers to where they just throw their hands up in the air and they say i'm done i've had it I've been in practice for 30, 35, 40 years. I've given everything to this industry. I've given my best to the patients. I've taken care of them. And these freaking payers, they don't want to pay me. But we're going to talk a little bit more about that later on. But I also want to keep this kind of a, a lighthearted, fun interview because my guest really is kind of a cool, fun, chilled out kind of a guy. So I'm talking about Dr. Stephen Soloway, and you're going to learn so much about him, and, and, and I think you're going to be just absolutely fascinated with learning more about who he is and, and what he does once you hear this podcast. Um, Doc, as I you know, like to refer to him, you know, he's dedicated his life to helping patients and colleagues. Patients come literally from all around the world as well as from all over the United State, States to seek his help. Uh, Dr. Soloway's devotion to patients' needs have earned him top doctor awards every year since 2003. And he is regarded as one of the leaders in the Philadelphia, New Jersey, and Delaware area for rheumatologic care. He's recently written a book titled Bad Medicine, The Horrors of American Healthcare, 
I have that book right here. I'm going to share with you how you can actually get a copy of this book from me for free. His doc was generous enough to send me an entire box that I have and that we want to share with you. Let me tell you a little bit about his credentials because I, I, I see, I know that you can see him and, and, and you see he's smiling and, and he's smiling because he should be because this guy really is cool. He was nominated to Chairman Department of Rheumatology Division of Internal Medicine for Inspira Health uh, Network. He's a clinical associate professor for Rowan University School of Osteopathic Medicine. He's an adjunct clinical associate professor at Drexel University College of Medicine, Castle Connolly, America's top doctor, Philadelphia Magazine, and Inside New Jersey Magazine top doctor. Again, as an industry leader, he sits on numerous boards and panels within the pharmacology industry, along with national advisory panels for all major companies involved in arthritis and osteoporosis research. He is known within the medical community as the medical detective. And what's really neat about Doc is that, you know, he'll tell you, if I can't fix you, I'll get you to the person who can. Um, Dr. Solway is involved not only in arthritis and osteoporosis treatment, but sports and occupational medicine as well. He runs osteoporosis, knee, and back pain clinics. He enjoys giving back to the community through charity and by teaching doctors from several medical institutions in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. He has been board certified in internal medicine since 1991 and in rheumatology since 1993 with specialized certifications in osteoporosis. But beyond that, he was appointed to President Trump's Fitness Council, and he was on Chris Christie's New Jersey Board of Medical Examiners. So, Doc, I know I've spent a few minutes here introducing you, building you up to our viewers, to our listeners, but I don't think that I have misstated or exaggerated any aspect of who or what it is that you do, what you've done, and what you continue to do. So I want to say welcome to the program. It's good to see you, my friend. Thanks for carving out some time to hang out with me. Uh, I look like a schlub uh, in, in my, uh, my, my half a turtleneck here, but at least I, I did my hair for you today. But look at you in that, that, that zoot suit with the sharp tie. You look great, my friend. How are you? Oh, I'm great, and I'm I'm honored to be here with you. I am honored. This is this is not a privilege; it's an honor. Well, thank you. I appreciate. You are that, the so. best. You, you don't have the top twenty-five show. You are the top twenty-five shows. Well, maybe one day, maybe one day we'll see about that. But I appreciate it. So, you know, look, um, I I think one of the things that's so important that I, I want to get out of the gate is rheumatology. Rheumatology is such a niche specialty, right? You know, we have mainstream specialty like cardiology and orthopedics and neurology, but so many people don't really understand what rheumatology is from a medicine standpoint. And what I tell people that are asking me for an explanation of rheumatology, what I tell them is, you all tend to be a last-ditch effort. 
because they've gone to everybody else. They've gone to the primary care doctor. They've gone to the orthopedist. They've gone to the pain management doctor, and nothing's working. And these tend to be train wrecks, right? Because they have so many problems, these inflammatory diseases, lupus, all of these different things. But beyond that, there are other, you know, environmental aspects that impact the patient. But can you quickly talk about what is rheumatology medicine and why is it that you guys are so incredible at what you do? Praise the Lord that you asked me that question. A rheumatologist is several doctors in one, so we fell through the cracks. Everybody knows or thinks or assumes that when your joints hurt, you go to an orthopedic surgeon and they are, quote, a bone doctor. In fact, a rheumatologist is a bone doctor, while an orthopedist is a bone surgeon. So if you have a painful, known arthritic knee and you'd like to get it treated without getting it cut out, you'd come to a rheumatologist who's trained in injecting, not an orthopedic who's trained in operating. Further, another example of why you would consider a rheumatologist just on that quote orthopedic note uh when a when an orthopedic surgeon removes a knee and puts in a new knee he's replacing a piece of rotted wood with a piece of stainless steel or ceramic however the termites that ate the wood and the process that's allowing them to live in the knee are still there. So they may not rot, rot the ceramic and they may not destroy the metal, but your gout attacks are gonna continue happening. How do I know this for a fact? I wrote a paper on it, I discovered it. Calcium pyrophosphate, same thing. And every other type of arthritis, flare, rheumatoid, osteo, this, that, anything you can name is gonna reoccur frequently. Now. So that's one thing a rheumatologist does, in addition to shoulders and backs and ankles. The other part, the other half of rheumatology is we are internists. We are an internal medicine trained doctor who does two extra years to learn how to diagnose and treat uh, complicated diseases, which are the lupuses and the vasculitis and the polychondritis. And the common theme about all the diseases that a rheumatologist treats is they tend to involve the connective tissue. They involve the muscles, the cartilage, the ligaments, the tendons. And again, all the things you'd associate with orthopedics or all the things you'd associate with pain management. But we actually have done training in the ICU, in the clinic, in the uh, private office, and all over the place. Um, evaluating people who don't just have a swollen knee, but they have a swollen knee with a fever, a swollen knee, a fever, and a red eye, a swollen knee, a fever, a red eye, and a discharge either from the, the rectum or the penis, or they can't breathe. And we have to put together the whole picture. And sometimes all the blood tests are normal. So you really need a lot of experience at this practice of medicine. So, so let me ask you this question. I, I, I've always wondered. It's so like me when when I made the decision that I wanted to go to medical school. Um, 
I had it in my head that I was either going to be an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon. Um, That's that's just what, for me, um, I, I felt like. But my question for you is, what made you decide on rheumatology? What was was there something that happened? Was there something that sparked your interest that made you go, "That's what I want to focus my my career on." When I was a PGY two, which is a second year internal medicine resident, I barely heard of or knew what a rheumatologist was. A new doctor came to our staff. He was the chief of the staff, and every month for the Interesting case of the week is how I'll describe it as opposed to the CPC, which is the official name. Every case was so interesting that nobody wanted to leave the room. We'd be there three hours for a one-hour meeting, and there'd be a pathologist, there'd be a radiologist, there'd be the director who happened to be a rheumatologist. And all these cases were so interesting. Nobody knew what was going on. Everyone was trying to figure things out. And at that moment, I said, wait a minute, three, four, five in a row, and they're all rheumatology? This is what I want to do. What's interesting is until I actually got into my rheumatology training in the fellowship itself, did I realize that I've now become an orthopedic surgeon without a knife because we were draining joints morning, noon, and night. We were injecting uh, joints from the neck to the, you know, to the feet and the, the TMJ and this and that. And the, I mean, so I got sparked in the year three by seeing an enormous amount of interesting cases. Because frankly, if you're a cardiologist, everybody has a murmur. If you're a GI doc, everybody needs a scope to look for cancer. If you're an orthopedic surgeon, you sit there and replace knees all day long. Right. If you're a rheumatologist, you're now the bridge that connects medicine to surgery. That's so fascinating. That really is. Um. So I want to dive into the book for a couple of minutes um, because, and, and don't take this the wrong way, but for anybody who doesn't know you, when they open up the book and they start in chapter one, they would think that you are the world's most arrogant person, right? But there's, I think there's a method to your madness in how you created the book, how you um, function each and every single day. And, you know, I always talk about how physicians as a whole, as a collective whole, tend to be really poor business decision makers, right? That's a fact. I mean, if you take a look, I mean, I worked for some of the largest health systems in the world dating back in the 90s and into the early part of the 2000s where everything was physician services, where we were acquiring uh, physician practices that were teetering on the brink of collapse. And they were looking for someplace else to go. But you're actually a very interesting businessman because your, your knowledge expands far beyond medicine. But the reason why I say folks would open up your book and think you're one of the most arrogant people is this little passage right here in chapter one, the man, the myth, the legend. Now I am going to steal some of this for myself, but 
here's what I want to here's what I want to um here's what I want to talk about. Um here you actually start off by talking about, you know, I am the best. I am the Rolls-Royce of rheumatology. I am the ca- so here we go. My name's Dr. Stephen Soloway, and I'm the best. I mean, who starts a book that way? But it gets better. The sharpshooter, the caviar, the Rolls Royce of rheumatology. Muhammad Ali called himself the greatest and didn't win every fight, nor do I get every diagnosis 100% of the time. I'm totally one of a kind. I will second that. A novel thinker, nonconformist. And after you read this book, I know you'll believe me. Well, I believe you. I believe you for so many reasons. And we'll talk about those as we move on. But let me ask you this question. What possessed you to start your book off that way? I wanted to get your attention. <laughs> and I'm the best. You are the best. <laughs> so why did you why did you decide that you wanted to write a book about the world of medicine? Because you had to, in the back of your mind, believe that you were gonna get some feedback that might not have been what what the average person would want to deal with, right? You're drawing a lot of attention to yourself, especially in a landscape like what we work in with payers, where there's always scrutiny of your services. There's always an opportunity to audit you or to make your life a living hell. What possessed you to write a book on bad medicine? What possessed me to write a book on bad medicine was many factors, but the, I'd say the catalyst was putting in more than 25 years in practice at what I consider to be a university in New York type of high level and finding out that every person that seems to come to me has been to four orthopedic surgeons three rheumatologists, two pain management, a psychiatrist, and a partridge in a pear tree. And by the time they get to me and I diagnose them in five minutes and they say to me, I don't understand, how could you possibly be right? I would turn around and I would say something like, well, you chose to come here because you heard I'm good and your friends come here and they got good results. And yet you're, you're now questioning the fact that I know what's wrong. And why is it that I'm the, the backstop, I'm the catcher, I'm the garbage can? I'm getting the people that have seen 10 other doctors, literally, for, for sometimes something as simple as knee pain or a trigger finger or carpal tunnel or something simple. So after doing this for 25 years with, uh, I don't know a number, but high 90% uh, satisfaction of patients, waiting list of months and months, um, yes, the audits and, and the harassment and the investigations and all these things, they, they do occur. And they're, they're, I mean, if you're a, a normal human being who's an honest person, you're going to be scared of it and, and so on. 
I thought it was time to take what's really going on in real medicine and try to share that with the real public so that they could see, hey, wait a minute, you couldn't make this stuff up if you tried. You have to be on the scene and you have to live it. And, you know, somebody needs to share it because it's true. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I enjoyed about the book, and and I actually, I told you this, there are some things where I've actually cited some of um, your book in some of the civil or criminal uh, uh, cases that I've been involved with. And there's some good reason for that. But what I find interesting about the book are the collection of letters that you've compiled. Um, you know, things that, Physicians around the country are thinking things that physicians around the country are trying to figure out. How do I deal with this? What is it that sparked in you the notion that I'm going to take on these insurance companies? I'm going to push back and I'm going to push back hard. And I understand that there's going to be repercussions for this. I understand that, you know, they may audit me. They may look at me closer. They may scrutinize me closer. I may be dropped from a panel. But what is it that made the, that made you want to take on the payers the way that you have? When I first started being audited for excessive volume or excessive procedures, the first thing I realized is I am by nature a workaholic. And it's not because I have to be, it's because I really do enjoy what I do. So for me, working a 12-hour day is pretty average. Seeing patients from 8 to 8 is pretty normal. Now, I'm now 30 years in practice, so I cut back a little bit, but it's not because I don't want to see the patients. It's because I am fighting the fight. And if I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight to win. Uh, I'm not going to back down to anybody if I know I'm honest and doing the right thing. And one thing I want to put out there is I find myself audited excessively for joint injections. However, I don't know any orthopedic surgeon who's ever been audited for excessive joint injections. But if you compare myself to an orthopedic practice, the numbers are even and they're in the operating room half their time and they're doing injections half their time. And they're seeing 100 people a day because it's just your knee hurts, squirt, next, 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 next. So why I'm singled out for that? It's because I happen to be a rheumatologist not being compared to orthopedic for the injection. Right. Second, biologic therapy in rheumatology has become the mainstay of care for almost two decades now. And each day and each month, as more drugs come out with more treatments for more diseases, it becomes more. And just because I'm the only guy on the block that developed a large infusion center, I mean, it's it's technically part of my practice. It's not a separate business. Right. But just because it's huge and it's full, all of a sudden, I'm this bad guy who's just doing it to rack up dollars when I'm not even close to the top when you add the oncology groups in. So maybe I should be compared to the oncology groups and they should say, wow, we actually have an innovative rheumatologist and we all need to do what he's doing because what he's doing has worked so well. He's on the number one podcast and he's been on this and that. And 
Maybe the guy's actually doing something right. How does he have a full waiting room if he's if he's ripping people off or prescribing Percocet or whatever the bad things are, the illegal things are? Right. This is why I wrote a book. Yeah. And 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 I agree with you. I think, you know, the way that the government compares physicians to other physicians without having a look at the end of the day we all know that you know the government says close enough is good enough but we know that's not true right and that's a huge problem but there's a a couple of things that you know in the book obviously where i found some parallels for myself so one of the chapters in your book is talking about the veterans administration right and I'll use the acronym FUBAR, right? Because that's what you use in there. Now, I'm not going to use the actual terms, but for anyone who is not familiar with the term FUBAR, you could use Dr. Google and type in F-U-B-A-R, and it will most likely bring up what it is. But I agree with you. The VA, for as long as I can think back, the VA has been a, a disaster. And it's been a disaster because of the corruptness that existed within the VA. Um, I was offered an opportunity. I was actually nominated to become the deputy director of the Veterans Administration um, when Trump came into office. And it was a tremendous honor for me. And it was so humbling to even be offered a position, you know, to, you know, to apply for a position like that, to be nominated, uh, to have letters of recommendation that were written for me by um, some of the most powerful people that you could get a recommendation from. It was fantastic. One, obviously, I love what I do. I love my company. I'm not going anywhere. I've got a good little gig here on Sean Island, so I'm not going to stick myself into the middle of something uh, um, so catastrophic. Um, But the corruption was the number one reason why I walked away at the time from even being further considered for that position. But you talk about the VA being completely messed up. From your, pers- from your perspective as a physician, why? How about I give you a couple of examples of things that I witnessed at the VA, just Let's as an example. It. All right. So when I spent a full year at the VA in the late 80s, and I have, Uh, twinkled around a little bit because I still go around here and there. When I walked in the VA the first day, it said in a big sign right next to Ronald Reagan's picture, it said, your personal phone calls cost this institution $138 million last year. And I thought to myself, why don't they throw the phones out then? Okay, well, that's one example. The second example is, I recall a man who was admitted to the hospital with a gout attack. A gout attack is a simple office thing that occurs. I mean, I'm sorry, when a person has a gout attack, they come to the office and you stick a needle in the joint, you drain it, confirm it, and stick medicine, and they go home, and that's it. We admitted a guy for a gout attack. You know how long the guy was in the hospital? One year. You might say, what are you talking about, one year? Well, He was interesting to somebody, but here was the better. He went home on weekends, on a weekend pass, came back on Sundays, and his family got fed at his bed, of course, so he ordered extra food. And 
The man was admitted for one year. So he lived at the VA. Okay. <laughs> so the VA offers hotel privileges and restaurant. You just don't know it unless you're there. Now, what else does the VA offer? After 1 a.m., all you have to do is be in a stairwell and you'll get to see a guy who looks like a janitor with a broom go like this. And I thought the first time I saw this, that's odd, until the ceiling tile turned over and the bag of cocaine fell out of the ceiling and another guy came up with money and they switched and that guy left that way, that guy left that way. And so there's three small examples of my time at the VA. And those are the three that just come right to my head 30 years later. And by the way, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Absolutely. Oh, I shouldn't say that. It's gotten worse. Yeah. It's gotten worse because some of the really smart doctors that are affiliated with some of the really smart medical centers that are nearby, some of them retired. Some of them were kicked out because if you're working for the government, you're time limited. So the smartest guys doing the best work had to retire at a certain age. This is insanity. The government overreach that goes on at the VA is the whole reason why the VA shouldn't exist. And one step further, all the veterans are on Medicare. So why do they need the VA? Why can't they go to their favorite local hospital? I want them to get treated. I want them to get the best care. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it, it drives me nuts with our government, especially when it comes to our um, men and women in uniform um, and their families, because they've sacrificed so much. They have given so much of themselves selflessly to this country. They, you know, in the 70s, you know, during the Vietnam War, those who were in the fields had Agent Orange dropped on them, only to find out years later the detriments that it caused to their health, cancer, all these horrible diseases, um, you know, the, the injections that they would receive prior to being uh, deployed downrange, um, not knowing what they were getting, why they were getting it, and later on finding out that it rendered them impotent or it created, you know, uh, uh, migraines or it created all these other problems for them. You know, when I got the privilege to work for the Department of Defense, I was um, in Landstuhl in Germany at the Landstuhl Regional Medical Center. And I remember watching the um, aircraft coming in. They would come into Ramstein. Uh, they would be brought over to Landstuhl, uh, you know, from the battlefields. And, you know, these are 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old men and women, you know, blown up by an I, you know, IED, um, you know, uh, friendly fire, whatever it is. And I would think to myself, man. Thank God for Landstuhl. Thank God for Ramstein. Because the care that these men and women were getting over here or getting over there was the best in the world. The problem was once they were stabilized and they were able to be transported back stateside, they fell through the cracks. Just like our retired military men and women have fallen through the cracks at the VA. It's a disaster. And I agree with you. Nothing has changed with the VA.
It, it just keeps getting worse. And not only are the military getting through the cracks, as the Medicare system is getting depleted and the Social Security system is getting depleted because people in high places learn how to steal money and they, they I don't know, I, I heard a plane load of money showed up in Iran, a few hundred billion dollars in dollar bills, but there's no money, you know, like when I retire, I won't have any Medicare benefits anymore or I won't have any Social Security benefits anymore. And, uh, you know, I wrote in the in the second book, the medical politics book, I wrote how I believe our class system is so changed that now we have peasants and billionaires, the whole Democrat, Republican, independent. This is all this is a show. You know, you have an oligarch billionaire who's 50 billion and up. Pick anyone you want. They are a pseudo communist because once you're that rich, you have to do what they say or they censor you. Then you have the middle class billionaire or the higher level peasant. And I am a higher level peasant. A higher level peasant is not a billionaire, but it's somebody who works, goes to work, has a car, takes a vacation, and generally lives a, quote, the American dream. And the guy with a billion dollars, unless he aspires to own a sports team or a rocket ship station, basically lives the same life, but can live his, leave his kids a billion instead of a million. And then on the lower end of the totem pole, you have the people that are shut-ins, if you will. I guess that's the most politically correct term. They get a check so they can stay shut in. And then you get the second level of shut-ins, which they walk out of their house and they walk to some government-sponsored place and they're paid just enough to survive and they're given health insurance that nobody takes. So to say that all doctors are close to equal or to say that having insurance universally is a good thing, this is exactly why it's a terrible thing. Because one, if you're not in incentivizing a doctor or a person to become a doctor, you're not gonna get a good pool of doctors. Second, if you get a really savvy group of doctors, then they're gonna say, well, wait a minute, I want to treat the middle class because I get paid for my service. I don't want to treat the people who have the government insurance because one, if I treat too many, I'm going to get audited or, or maybe shot at or something. And furthermore, they don't pay. And they're the ones who are trying to save money by giving a haircut to all the doctors, but the VA is still open, wasting you know, maybe trillions over the years. Yeah. So I agree with you. So that, that, that brings me to another, another chapter in your book where it talks about big government is bad. And let me, let me kind of set it up, right? So um, I try to remain very apolitical on my podcast, but unfortunately, healthcare has been over-politicized. Um, even prior to the pandemic, people, unless you had direct access because i get a lot of people that you know say this and that or the other and i asked them have you ever worked on capitol hill have you ever engaged with a congressperson or a senator have you ever seen the inner workings of a governmental agency because if you haven't it's easy to be an armchair quarterback and to sit there and say you're wrong you're a conspiracy theorist but i've seen the inner workings 
of government agency. I've had the pleasure and sometimes the displeasure of working with people in the upper and lower chambers of Congress, meaning the House and the Senate. I believe personally that big government is bad. And I think it's bad for a number of reasons. And I think there's a lot of people, because when you talk about big government, I think you have to also equate that with socialism to a degree, right? And 100%. When, yeah. And when you talk about socialism, now, I, I, I'm sure I'm going to get somebody or a few people that don't like what I'm about to say, but I'm okay with that, okay? Here's the, it, because it's the truth. If you look at countries that have been dominated by socialist policies, Venezuela, right, as a prime example. These countries are bankrupt. They are impoverished. They are constantly at war, at civil war with their own people. They're starving. They are without proper medical care. The cost of goods in those countries is so excessive that it becomes only accessible to a few. If you take a look at the United States of America, we have traditionally been a capitalistic society. And I know capitalism is considered to be a dirty word in some circles, but the fact is that's what this country is. It's a capitalistic society. And we have, in my opinion, and I want to get your take on this because you you do have a lot of political affiliations. And I know you have some strong positions as a physician on this, as a business owner, as a businessman. We are, we have been seeing over the last couple of years now, what I consider to be a social experiment in this country, a socialist experiment in this country. And I don't know that it's going very well with the fact that We've seen 7.5% increase in um, inflation between January of 2020 to January of 2021. Gas prices, I mean, in some parts of the country, man, we're, we're approaching that $8 a gallon mark. You know, oil is what? Over $100 a barrel. The cost of going to the food store is now approximately $1,000 per month more than what we were spending prior to, and we're not getting the same value for our dollar. Socialized medicine. Yeah, yeah, socialized medicine, right? So uh, uh, let me pull it back in. Socialized medicine has been a concept that a lot of folks have talked about here in this country for decades. And the fact is we do have socialized medicine in this country. Socialized medicine is government-sponsored health care. We have that with Medicare and Medicaid. Is it working? Am I, am I overstating the dysfunction of the system? Am I out of line? What are your thoughts on the the, the state of healthcare? I don't know if I could state better what you just stated, 
So I'll just try to put in my words what I see. We absolutely have socialized healthcare. Uh, what should be pointed out is 100 million people are in the socialized group. However, 200 million people remain in the private sector. Now, there's two, two algorithms that leave from this point. So let me start by the people that are in the uh, socialist group that want socialized medicine for everybody. I'd first say, if private works for two thirds, why switch one third to ha make happy the other two thirds when they're already theoretically happy? The second thing is, if you were to socialize medicine, at least in concept, you'd have to raise taxes because somebody would have to pay for it because now it's another government expense. And since we just printed $5 trillion and we've seen all the things you pointed out, food prices out of control, quality out of control, gasoline prices out of control, nobody wanting to go to work because they got a stimulus check, but the casinos are still busy with people spending their stimulus check. But in all seriousness, so socialized medicine can't work for two reasons. One, the government will incur higher cost, which will pass on to the person, which is us. And we do pay a fair amount of tax. The government collects trillions in tax dollars. Um, the other thing about socialized medicine is making an assumption that all doctors are equal. And that's ridiculous. There's many people that go into medicine as a second job because their spouse works in a full-time job and in their job, their role is to have a part-time job and they work nine hours a week. They'll work three hours, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, or Monday, Wednesday, Friday. How can that person possibly be as skilled as somebody who's doing it day in and day out for years and decades and so on? It's not possible. So the concept of two people being equal, that, that concept is ridiculous. I mean, that is probably one of the most ludicrous things that, that can be said. Um, no, no one's equal. I'm not better or worse than anybody. I'm not, I'm, but I'm certainly not equal to anybody. Yeah, no, um, I now, understand the point that you're trying to make. No, it's a, it's an extremely valid point. No two people are are, are identically equal. It, 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 it's, it's just not possible. Um, so one, one of the things that you experienced was the wrath of the government in an audit. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you were one of the very first people targeted by the recovery audit contractor. But your overpayment demand at the time, and it still may be true today, yours was the largest amount ever requested as an overpayment demand from a recovery audit contractor. It was in excess of $2 million. Am I correct? Yes. You are correct. In fact, I'm so busy, I don't know why they didn't ask for $5 million. <laughs> but notice, they claimed after the fact, several years after the fact, they overpaid me. They never said I did anything wrong. So what I was accused of is working too much. They can't understand that there are people, maybe just me, but maybe others, you can actually work smart. If you work smart, you work efficient, you have a good staff, you take care of your staff, they take, they take care of you, and you can get a lot of work done in an efficient manner. And just right. because you're efficient and you're not you know, linked with the orthopedic surgeon when it comes to the injections, 
all of a sudden you're such an outlier, the first thing they do is they say, well, let's check two charts, extrapolate the data, and you owe us two and a half million dollars. Okay, well, if you get hit for $50,000, you cut a check and you move along and you forget about them and they forget about you. But if you're the big outlier who's doing all the work, um, you can't walk away from that kind of money. So what do you do? You get lawyers, you get people like yourself, you get advisors, you get smart people, and you fight. And you fight hard and you fight to win. And you, you go through the five levels of appeal. I stopped at level three, which was a federal district court, and, and I won. And I won because I went before a judge who is a rational thinking man, and he told me, I only overturn 8% of the cases brought before me, and I do a lot of this work. He made it very clear, like my chances of getting an overturn from the beginning were not high. But if, if it didn't work at this level, I was gonna go to the next level and wherever I had to go, because it's just too much to walk away from. Because I didn't do anything wrong except work and accept the fees that Medicare paid me, which, by the way, are the lowest of anyone. So no doctor really has an incentive to see these people, which is why Manhattan, you can't find a doctor that will accept Medicare assignment. You have to pay, and then you submit the bill to Medicare yourself. But yeah, so I, I, I had that audit. It, this audit was brought upon, uh, it was started by Barack Obama's administration. They brought on this recovery audit system where they pay contractors a percentage of what they recover. It's in the billions, like $3 billion they expect to recover. Well, why are they paying it out? Why don't they lower their reimbursement? Why are they saying they overpaid you after the fact if you work too much? How could somebody tell you you work too much? If you're tired, you stop working. If you're an ambitious person, you keep working. This is the beautiful thing about a capitalist country. You can work as much as you want. Yeah, nobody's forcing you to do it. You work as hard as you want. You get to the level where you feel comfortable or you don't. And then you figure it out from there. I, I agree with you. So, uh, you know, I don't know if you're picking up on a trend. I kind of like to go from uh, a fun topic to a more serious topic back to a fun topic. I want to switch to a fun topic for a minute because in the book, you have a, a chapter called um, uh, Solwayisms, and it, it, it's it's lighthearted. It's kind of fun. There, there's a few that I really enjoyed in there. I mean, I enjoyed all of it, but there's a, a few that I really like that kind of resonated with me. And I'll, I'll get your take on them. Um, one of them is the devil you know may be better than the devil you don't. What do you mean by that? People are always looking for change. Yeah. People always think the grass is greener somewhere else. People all talk about leaving the United States because it's this evil place to be. Yet the borders are being overrun by people that are either being tortured, raped, murdered, poisoned, something. And they're all trying to come here for the American dream, which is really just to have freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and just civil liberties. And now that we have people that have gone into leadership positions, they're trying to brainwash the next generation that these things are no good and that the government should have the only voice because there's too many people speaking. And what you're used to may become boring, but it's still much better than the unknown, which has to be worse because they've tried it everywhere else in the world. And to quote my chapter, uh, Soloism, if it happens once, it's a trend. 
So we went through Nazi Germany before I was born, and now we're going through a Holocaust in Ukraine. And in 100 years from now, it'll be another one. So it's already been established that it's a, a trend. So what people don't like about this country, maybe they don't like that other people do something better than they do. If they're so unhappy here and they're from another land, why not go back and try to make your other land a better place? Make it the best it can be, but don't try to change a system that's been functioning for 240 odd, 40 odd years. Why, why would somebody think that way? Why would you move here and not try to adopt, adapt to what we're doing? And why would you, why would you do that? Why'd you come in the first place? Because you had to leave the other place. I mean, let's be honest about this. Nobody's coming here because they don't want to be here. So if you come, try to fit in at least. I think that's what I meant by the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. Yeah. I like a couple of other ones in here. If you don't get what you want, you may deserve better. Yeah. Um, we'll keep it lighthearted. Yeah. If a girl broke your heart, which we've all had it happen, there's a better woman out there for you. Okay. But, uh, you know, in reality, whether it's business, whether it's medicine, of a business of medicine or law or politics, whatever, if something isn't going your way, there may be a, a bigger reason that you're just not aware of. And you, you try hard, you put yourself out there and you find yourself in a better place. It's just until you see yourself go through that uh, continuum, you don't know yet. Except history tells you that that's probably true. Yes, I, I, that I would agree with. And the last one, because there's so many of them, but the last one that I, I wanted to point out is never say never, never say always. What a great line. That's, yeah. you know, so the origin of that phrase goes back to being trained to take board exams 35 years ago. And if the question said, could a person X never or always eat a ham sandwich. You never say never and you never say always because there's always going to, well, you never say always, but there will be an exception to virtually everything. That's right. So when they say um, um, any, any sentence where you can put the word never or always, I would say is a false sentence because to say we've never had poverty or we've never had war or we've always had conflict or we've always, always had happiness or we always have freedom. These are ridiculous statements. They're generalizations. And again, it's somebody trying to dictate to everybody what only applies to a, a, a portion of the, the said population. Right. Gotcha. So, Let's transition now back over to your practice, because I think what you're experiencing right now is what almost everybody is experiencing in healthcare, and that's a decrease in reimbursement and unwillingness of the providers to pay claims, pay claims in accordance to their contractual obligations pay them in a timely manner, 
but yet still expect the physicians to have an outlay of expenses to be able to care for members of their plan. What are some of the issues that you're dealing with right now as a rheumatologist in getting paid? Two biggest issues I'm dealing with uh, right now in the practice of rheumatology. One is the prepayment audit. Um, the payer who you have a contract with to pay you a dollar basically has said, we're going to do a prepayment audit. We're not going to pay you until we audit your chart and see if we agree. So my rebuttal to that has been, I'm not seeing your patients until you pay me first because the contract says it's fee for service. Here's the service, now give me the fee. <clears throat> so that's one big thing we're dealing with. The other massive thing we're dealing with is the denial of necessary tests that were approved 10 years ago and 15 years ago. 15 years ago, a hatchet came down, came out of the sky. I can't say never or always as to where it came from, but I have my own thoughts, but everything is denied. Um, you know, you, you have to get, um, we, we dropped one insurance company because they literally wanted a phone call or a peer-to-peer just to drain a joint. Now, this is part of the exam, essentially. Somebody has a hot knee or, you know, a swollen joint. You have to, you have to stick a needle in and find out what's wrong because it could be infected and you're going to save their life. You're going to waste time calling somebody who's not there and you're going to wait three days. No, that's unacceptable. So we dropped that insurance company. So uh, th those type of regulations are growing uh, faster than uh, the speed of light. Um, seriously, I, I think they are literally alongside of lightning. I don't know, you know, they're neck and neck, but probably five times a day, we get a denial for something that's not only reasonable, but we've already mailed in articles proving from scientific data or the standards of care or things that they approved three years ago. And I use those arguments to say, look, you have a patient on medicine for 10 years, he's stable, and you, and you won't pay for the drug? No, it's not on a formulary. I'm, well, it's on my formulary. Don't I count? I'm the guy making the rules in this place. And if it's on my formulary and we have a contract, either you're going to pay or I'm going to treat them for free and sue you, and I will win because I've done nothing wrong. You don't have the right to tell me what drugs I can use because they might as well go to the drug company and say, you're not allowed to make that drug. If the right. drug's available and it works and it's better than anything else for a given patient, how can a company who has only financial interest involved, how can they tell me or anyone else, you can't use that drug? Or the drug's off formula, I'm sorry, the drug's off patent, so therefore it's no good anymore. What do you mean it's no good anymore? It was really good before and now it's no yeah. good. You can't monetize it, so it's no good. It doesn't yeah. work, it's not monetizable. It's all financial. Nothing's medical. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, I, it's profits I, I, before patient care. Peer-to-peer -peer review is never medical. It's, I've never even been questioned how to make a diagnosis or how did I come to a conclusion. The question is always, you need to use a cheaper drug. So it's a financial peer-to-peer. -peer. It's never a doctor peer-to-peer. -peer. They don't even have a peer at any of these companies of mine. Well, yeah, that's, that's the problem. Uh, in all of the peer-to-peer -peer reviews that I do on behalf of my my clients, when we're going around the table, I always, before I introduce my provider, I ask the medical director who's on the line, one, 
are you still a practicing physician? Two, what are you board certified in? And, um, and, and, and three, if they are not of the specialty of my physician, what makes you qualified to opine on the services of a rheumatologist? Because just being a family doctor or just being an internist or being a podiatrist or being a retired dentist, look, just having the, the, the initials after your name, MD or DO, doesn't qualify you to call into question the credentials and the clinical judgment of my specialist. So I agree with you. You know, I just went through a situation, um, and I'll say this because I'm the member, United Healthcare, absolutely um, horrific experience with United Healthcare, and they lie. They lie to you as a member. Now, forget about being a doctor. They lie to you as a member. And if they, and I know I have people from UHC who have listened to my podcast because I get emails from them. Hey, can you can you not say that? No, I'm going to say it. So I've been on a medication called Dexalin. For anybody who doesn't know what that is, that's for GERD. It is for people who have been on uh, omeprazole, on protonics, on a proton pump inhibitor to reduce the acid in your gut. I've been on the uh, Prilosec. I've been on the Pepsid. I've been on the, um, the other medications, right? The problem is those create gastric polyps in me, and they put me at higher risk for stomach cancer if they're not dealt with. So once a year, I have to go for an upper endoscopy to get all of these gastric polyps removed from my system. They put me onto this medication, Dexalin. I've been on it for years now. It works. I take it. I don't have to sit up in bed at two in the morning, burning, feeling like I'm a dragon about to burn down an entire, you know, castle. But somebody in their infinite wisdom decided to take Dexalant off of the formulary, uh, formulary list. So now it requires a PA, a prior authorization. Well, my doctor sent in a prior authorization. Now, today is what? June 17th. My physician's office sent in a prior authorization on May 14th. I have been taking omeprazole, and I'm having to double up on it. I'm having to take Tums. I'm having to take Rolaids. I know some of you are sitting there going, Sean, we're not here to listen to your healthcare problems. We don't care. You should, because it could be you next. Absolutely. Fight. I, I, I have never had to fight so hard. To And my physician even said to me, Sean, what else do you want me to do? I don't know what else I can do. Well, you're my physician. You're my advocate. You need to advocate for the reasons why I have to be on this medication. Don't tuck your tail and run from the payers. Stand up and advocate for your patients the way that you want people like me to advocate for you. So, well said. Yeah. So, you know, 
back back to what's going on with you. So, Doc, you got a lot of stuff going on, but your your situation, you know, your story is no different than the hundred thousand other physician stories just like yours out there. The difference is, you actually did something about it, and you continue to fight it, and that's what providers need to hear. And providers need to understand that you can fight and you can win. And the more you push back, the more likely you are to be successful moving forward. It's no longer a matter of trying to be able to sustain in a practice. You want to be able to thrive in your practice. Because being acquired by a hospital may sound like a great idea until you become an employee of a hospital. And it's no longer up to you what type of chair goes into your reception area. It's no longer up to you what electronic medical record system you're on. It's no longer up to you what your hours of operations are going to be. It's no longer up to you how much you can spend on bonuses for your staff, on salary increases. You lose your autonomy when you become an employee of a health system. I've been with the largest health systems in the world. I know. I was a chief, I was a corporate compliance officer. I was the physician liaison. So I understand this. I'm not saying working for a hospital is bad. I'm not saying working for a health system is bad. But if you're someone who craves autonomy, if you are someone who doesn't play well in the sandbox with others, Being an employee of a health system or a hospital is not something that you should consider, which is why you need to get your act together and why you need to make sure that you are doing the right things. Take lessons from people like Stephen Soloway, who have been down the road and who continue to fight that good fight. Pick the guy's brain. Find him on Facebook or Instagram or on LinkedIn or on one of the other social media platforms. Get his book. Send him an email. The guy loves to talk. As they say in New Jersey, New York, he loves the kibitz. <laughs> so, you know, Pre- President Trump said of me, he said, um, he said, Steve Soloway is a great man, a little different, but in a good way. Yeah. And, and you know, it's funny. I wasn't going to bring it up because, you know, well, whatever. I am going to bring it up. You're 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 very close and personal friends with Donald Trump, the 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 POTUS, former POTUS. You had an interesting story about how you met. You want to share that real quick? Um, President Trump and I met um, in the early two thousands when I started um, investing in real estate in Manhattan, um, to me at that point in life, the pinnacle of success was to own a parking spot in Manhattan. So it just so happens that I bought, like I got on the radar, I bought too much. So uh, Donald Trump, prior to being the president, sent his chief uh, operating officer for the uh, hotel organization 
to find out who the hell is Steve Soloway or this guy buying all these apartments in my building. So it's like I was accosted and brought to sit and meet Donald Trump. And we had a nice conversation. He asked me, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And he said, I like your, uh, he said, I like your uh, desire, your attitude, your spunkiness, you know, your, 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 your positive attitude. I'd like you to be on the board for um, this particular building. This is in Central Park. And um, so it was a casual meeting. It was very nice. Um, um, he's a bit stoic when you don't know him, but when you know him, he's a regular guy. And um, uh, at the first board meeting, which was probably a week or less than a month later, I had a, an argument with another guy on the board. And as soon as the uh, board meeting ended, I got called into Donald's office and I sat across from him at the desk and I thought, oh, God, you know, I'm going to be reprimanded like I'm the kid in school who did something bad. He says, I, I love what you did. I want you on all the boards. You're great. You're, you're the greatest. I want you on all the boards. And that's how we met. That's funny. Did he say this is going to be huge? Steve, this is going <laughs> to be this is going to be huge. <laughs> the hugest the hugest boy there were some trumpisms there's no doubt about that so folks um the last thing that i want to bring up is the last thing that dr solway and i had in common um for those of you that are into collecting things we're the best we're the best you're the best i've realized i've realized through all of the conversations that you and i have had uh, especially over the last week and and after rereading Bad Medicine again and then hanging out with you today for an hour on the podcast, I've realized that when I grow up, I want to be Steve Soloway. The guy's but a he, gold But he's medal. a little different. He's a he's little a bit different, different but that's a, a good thing. He is a little different. Listen, the guy's a gold medal winner in swimming. Um, well, that's in that's in the master swimming where I compete only against people my age. I understand, but see, you you use the term master. See, once again, you are a master. Listen, the guy holds a black belt, right? Is that in jujitsu or is that in uh, karate? That was in a disciple of karate called Ryo Goju, and Ryo I Goju. was trained by the infamous. I, oh my God! This gets into a long story, but I'll make it a short. Um, Joe Art Sensei Joe Artizi and Sen and Sensei Carol Wood. Okay. These are the oh my God of you know. Mm. You got it. So the guy, listen. I told you at the beginning of this thing. If he's not one of the most interesting men in the world, he is the most interesting man. In they should have used him for the Dosecchi's commercials instead of the other guy. You know, uh, I don't drink often, but when I do, <laughs> it's Dosecchi. Um, but, but, you know, um, it, it, one of the things that I know Doc has a, a huge passion for is collecting baseball cards uh, and sports memorabilia. As a matter of fact, he was elected to the professional uh, Sports Authenticators Hall of Fame, which is PSA. And it's 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 a tragic story. We're not going to get into all the details, but this, 
It is still recognized today as the Stephen Soloway collection, which is the most revered collection of baseball cards in the entire world. It includes the uh, Hannes Wagner uh, tobacco card, which I think was, if not the highest graded, one of the highest graded, uh, the Babe Ruth rookie card. Uh, it just was Shoeless Joe Jackson. It, it just was comprised of the most incredible baseball cards that were available. Um, beyond that, I know you're an avid art collector. Uh, there's so many artists that I know you, you know, that you, uh, uh, follow and that you are a fan of too many for me to be able to mention. Um, one of the interesting things that you did talk about though, that I do know about is when you were on, um, Donald Trump's, uh, airplane and you were talking, he said, you know, Stephen, if the plane's to go down, neither you or I are going to be the first person that they look for, no matter how huge we are. They're going to look for what? The Renoir. The Renoir. And I immediately saw it, and I recognized it because Renoir, for those who don't know, is a famous artist who had rheumatoid arthritis and at the end of his painting career stuck the paintbrush in his mouth or he taped it to his arm. And he also painted and depicted swollen knuckles. So it was uh, it was meant to be, you know, that uh, I was to be educated again, not just in the rheumatology training about Renoir, but from the Donald Trump collection of Renoir. Pretty neat, pretty spectacular. Uh, as I said, when I grow up, I want to be Stephen Soloway. All right, listen, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of this podcast. I am so grateful to each and every single one of you that tunes in, logs on, and hangs out with me each and every single day. Um, and for those of you that are only hanging out with me once or twice a week, shame on you. It should be a daily thing. You have such great content, such great guests. Again, I want to thank my good friend, Dr. Stephen Solway, no, uh, 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 known rheumatologist, uh, businessman, avid collector, uh, avid swimmer, just all around cool guy. Doc, thanks for hanging out with me for a little while. I loved it. I love you. Thank you so much for the honor to be with you for this hour. Well, it was my honor, and, and it's such a privilege to be able to spend time not only with such brilliant minds and, and, and unbelievable human beings, but with people that I can truly consider my friend. All right. So again, to each and every single one of you, thank you so much for hanging out with us for a little while today. We'll be back on Monday with the compliance round table until then. Remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. Take care.